Rosemary asked a fair number of good questions that Tommy will unpack a little later in his session, um, but certainly there are a number of areas we could sort of really get involved in to, to a greater extent in the industry. Before I introduce our next two speakers, we're going to talk about um, where DC plans should be going and the research that Alexander Forbes have been doing in terms of where they are at the moment. Um, given the risk of a lot of you leaving for lunch, I thought that it's important at this point to just acknowledge the sponsors. So thank you very much to Liberty and Alexander Forbes as gold sponsors, um, Arjun as the silver sponsor and Sunlam as the bronze sponsor. I suppose it's a neck and neck race in terms of whether Arjun is newer than the newly listed Alexander Forbes. Um, but for those of you who don't know who Arjun is, hopefully you will find out in terms of the, the release of that new merged entity. Uh, this session is Trends in DC and Rethinking of Benefit Design. It is a longer session, so I thought I'd let our speakers sit down for most of it. So, and for those of you who thought that you, a spot at the back was a good idea, you may lose sight of our speakers. Our first speaker is Kelsey Mudley, who is at Alexander Forbes in the Research and Product Development team. Uh, she carries out employee benefits research and data analysis, particularly around benefits barometer. So those of you who aren't aware of the work that's done and the research that is available, um, hopefully this session will inspire you to go online and have a look. And she's also involved in several other pro products that provide support to the strategic consulting within the Alexander Forbes business. I introduced her before her boss because it is ladies first, John Anderson, who's MD of research and product development at Alexander Forbes. Um, in this role, he oversees research, best practice, and product development. He's been at Forbes since 2001 and done a number of typical things that a lot of us in the room have been doing, amongst others being evaluator, head of the Cape Town branch, national head of consulting, and now in his current role as head of the research and development, product development cluster. So I welcome both of them to talk about um, where DC funds are at the moment and their views in terms of where they will go in the future. Uh, thank you very much, Rowan, and uh, good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. Um, we're going to try and keep it an interactive session. Uh, it is an hour and a half. It is long, so we'll try our best to keep it interactive. There are also, throughout the presentation, uh, questions, so you can use your voting button so we can make sure that you guys just uh, stay awake. Um, and then we'll also be swapping just between myself and Kelsey uh, throughout the, the presentation. So we were approached by the Retirement Matters Committee just to have a look at rethinking benefit, uh, defined contribution benefit design, and also looking at the role of the actuary within defined contribution funds. And it's quite pleasing to see here today um, how many people we actually have here. Uh, because the retirement fund industry, I don't know if you've seen the latest Financial Services Board report, close on 80% of funds in South Africa are actually defined contribution. And people were wondering, well, what are actuaries going to be doing when defined benefits funds close and defined, you've got defined contribution. And hopefully after today, um, you know, we'll help show what value actuaries can actually add and we can maybe debate at the end if, for example, a, a specific role shouldn't be uh, earmarked for actuaries in defined contribution, similar to the way that in defined benefit funds you had a statutory actuary, especially given the advent of things like TCF, 
people's needs are different, the judgment that you need to apply in things like benefit design. Uh, and I think it's quite an, an interesting one just to think about. So we were asked to think about the future, um, but part of it was to look at, let's look at the present and some of the history. So what we've got here is there's just the content for today, and it's quite an action-packed uh, list over there, which I hope you'll enjoy dealing with all the issues in, def in defined contribution funds ranging from investments. Um, we'll share with you some of the research from the Benefits Barometer, which is a research publication done annually, and Kelsey's um, quite key in that in doing a lot of the analysis and research, uh, and, and hopefully you'll benefit from that. And then new ideas, things like risk sharing uh, in defined contribution funds. Many of you would have seen what is being happening in the UK with what is called defined ambition uh, funds and rethinking maybe have we not gone too far in South Africa uh, to place too much risk on individuals uh, and nothing on the employer should there not be some risk sharing and what is quite interesting is that uh, the regulator has actually uh, earmarked that especially post-retirement in some of the potential defaults that can be allowed uh, in fund defaults where there can be some uh, risk sharing so I think maybe we're going in the right direction on some, but there's maybe some scope for some others. And then we'll talk about some key issues in defined contribution funds to make sure that they're effective. Things like defaults, education, communication, and in particular the, applying actuarial techniques into the measurement of success and how practically this can impact um, within trustee boards, uh, umbrella fund, mancos, and also members um, in the defined contribution funds. So, um, I'll just skip that because we've cancelled that question. So, the first thing is the findings from the latest benefits barometer. Uh, and th for those of you that don't know what this is, it's a publication by Alexander Forbes that started uh, last year. I think, uh, where's Anne Cabot? I think she's at the back there. She actually spearheads uh, a lot of the research done, and it's for the benefit, really, of the industry, looking at key issues in the employee benefits uh, industry. Um, I've got the uh, address over there if you go to benefitsbarometer.ca.za. I really do encourage you to have a look, because it's quite a, it's a thick book. It's about 480 pages, um, so you're gonna, you can maybe read it this weekend or tonight if you're staying over. Um, but what I find really interesting is every time I read this uh, publication, it brings something new. And it, and it made me sit up and, because as, as a evaluator, as someone who is, was practicing within the, the retirement fund industry, we very much looked at retirement fund problems and then advising clients and doing things. This publication helped me just to step back to have a look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, is quite an interesting one when we found that all the pieces are not fitting together. Exactly what I did when I was practicing, we focus on one piece of the puzzle, the next person they're focusing on their puzzle, uh, piece of the puzzle, and we're not actually connecting all the dots. And that's why we're getting some of the outcomes we found. As you know, we, um, retirement savings in South Africa, well, savings in general is low, preservation rates are quite low, the actual replacement ratios coming, uh, being achieved by defined contribution funds are not sufficient. The average is below 30%. So, for example, if your salary at retirement is 100, you're probably going to get a pension if you're the average defined contribution member of less than 30 rand. 
And that is because of various factors, and not necessarily all the factors that are highlighted by uh, the things in the reform. For example, costs, yes, costs is an issue, but is it the biggest issue? And, um, you know, some of the other things. And so this publication helps us refocus and look at what is really important, and I hope you're going to find, you know, some of the things of, of real benefit. It also reminded me, why are we here? Why are you sitting here today? And what is the impact that you have? And at the end of the day, um, and it sounds very simplistic, but retirement funds are there to form, uh, to, to actually for social protection. If you have a look at the, um, the constitution of South Africa, people need basic things, healthcare, access to water, etc., etc. And a key component of it is also social protection. And you have been empowered via the legal structures of retirement funds to fulfill that, and essentially that's, that function is outsourced uh, to the private sector with some oversight from the, govern the government, uh, with the, in, you know, the regulator looking at different things. And you fulfill three very important functions, making sure that people retire with sufficient income, making sure that the dependents get sufficient benefits on passing away of those individuals. And the third thing is making sure that the investments are invested in such a way to make sure that they are sustainable. Why is that important? Because that determines what you pay for electricity, the, the infrastructure, whether it's a good quality, which then impacts eventually the liabilities uh, 40, years, 40 years hence. So it's very, very important the work that we actually do and actually to try and address the key issues to improve the impact that we, that we actually have. So I'm going to look really at uh, the investment side first, and Kelsey will look at some of the broader issues in defined contribution funds. So let's kick off with how we're doing on defined contribution funds. And what you see up front here, and for those of you that can't see, don't worry, the presentation will be made available uh, to you in a copy. But really, this is um, a, the pensions index, and it's, a, it's an index that we constructed going back to 2001, tracking individuals that were on track for 75% replacement ratio. So based on the markets at the time, the real returns that could have been expected at the particular time, mortality, the average contributions going towards retirement funds, the kinds of costs you would pay, people were on track. So the average member was actually on track for a reasonable retirement because they all started at uh, 75. Then as we went through to 2002-03, many of you will remember that there was a market crash. That impacted defined contribution members negatively. But look what happened then since then. There was a big spike t uh, just before the financial crisis and those people who had saved um, quite a lot and especially the older generation benefited quite handsomely from a lot of those returns. But what you can see subsequently because of lower real returns, the cost of annuities going up, the cost of securing an income going up, and things like mortality, people living longer. The expected pensions of each of the three, uh, four generations has actually deteriorated over the last seven years. And remember, these are people that actually have preserved their savings throughout the particular period. So what's actually happening here? Well, what is happening here, and you can see that for all, all the members started at the same point, but they're currently in a very different position. And that means that different generations are starting to experience different pension outcomes from defined contribution funds. Yet, 
Many defined contribution funds were structured as a one-size-fits-all. So a key takeout for us was we can no longer look at a one-size-fits-all. You must remember that you've got vastly different membership demographics, uh, where people live, the kind of expenses that they pay, savings histories that they have. So we need to rethink defined contribution, not just for the average member throughout, but rather on a more individualized basis. Because we know people are switching jobs quite regularly. They're not going to be on your fund uh, for 40 years. Fewer and fewer of them are going to be there for 40 years. And also we need to start addressing the, the people who have saved throughout 40 years, the current generation retiring with that kind of service. They've been okay. And they've been okay for various reasons. They've benefited from good past returns. Um, those that were lucky enough to, from, to con, you know, when they're converting from DB to DC, and I say it's a relative luck, we can argue whether DC is better than DB, but if they got enhancements, the picture would have looked even better than what we're showing over here. Um, we pre I presented to a client last week, and it's quite interesting to have a look at people that are expected to have 37 and a half years of service. Virtually everybody that's retiring now and will be retiring in the next three years will be reasonably comfortable. It is the new generation who didn't participate in the, the enhancements of defined contribution funds who have not benefited from the good past returns that we've seen to get the JSC where we see it at the levels today. They're expected to be in a different economic environment for a longer or different period. And therefore, you need something very different. Um, yet, if you go to your uh, trustee meetings, look at the way you structure a fund, it's typically structured for the average member. It's, only, it's very few funds that are actually starting to apply some of the techniques that we're going to show to you today um, to start moving towards a more individualized um, approach. So when we converted from DB to DC, do many of you remember what, how the investment strategies looked? I see a lot of gray hair around here. I'm starting to get some uh, myself. Luckily, I've still got some. But um, I mean, you'll recall when you had a DB fund, Members looked at their benefit statement and they looked at gradual increases from year to year and it's the way the formula worked, so it's a smooth ride to retirement. Then they converted from DB to DC. So what did we do? We introduced a one-size-fits-all investment strategy. When you first converted, especially those conversions that happened in the 80s and particularly the 90s, how many of you over here had an investment strategy that realized each individual's different circumstances. Virtually none, because I was a, uh, an actuarial student and I remember um, doing uh, financial reviews. And back then, the actuary would declare return at the end of the year, which today seems quite foreign to us. Uh, we've got daily unitization, you get your returns as it happens. Back, what happened back then, for those of you that don't know, is you would have a fund the actuary would declare return for the year, which would be estimated based on what you could expect, cash returns, and maybe be conservative, let's say 7.5%. Everybody that left throughout that period got 7.5%. Then at the end of the year, what we would do is we would calculate the actual return on the fund and then declare what was called a bonus. And we would typically then, in declaring the bonus, we would smooth the returns. So you would have smoothing of returns. Um, and, and 
what then happened, people realized with surplus legislation and a couple of other things that you've got intergenerational transfers. People that are exiting are not getting the same return as those leaving. People, when you contribute, you're not getting the actual returns on those contributions um, as and when they are being achieved. So what happened then was we converted from smoothing of returns after the DB arrangement into daily and more monthly unitization, where you calculate a unit every month, and that is what is declared to individuals, and today you get daily unitization. But what I want to, sh what I want to share with you is what were we trying to achieve, and we need to actually step back. What are we trying to achieve? So what I'm saying is what we don't want. We don't, and this is a slide showing the purchasing power or pension of your individual members at retirement. And the top line shows you a pension that is varying. So imagine a pensioner starts off with a pension of 100 rand. Next month it's 50 rand. The next month it's 130. That's the particular point in life when you cannot absorb that kind of volatility. So we're, what we're actually trying to achieve is a much more smoother ride at retirement. And that's why I think some of the principles originally with smoothing of returns when you went from DB actually you know, if you, in hindsight, made sense, but for various reasons, uh, you know, the market moved completely away from that. And, so, and similarly, those principles were applied into pensioner pools. I don't know if you, those of you that remember, you had de defined contribution pensioners. You would take your fund credit, convert it into the fund. You would all be in the pool, and the returns and everything would be smooth. Most funds don't work that way. Everything's outsourced to the market. Do we not need to relook at uh, some of those uh, principles? So what we do want is stability of income and make sure that there's an income for life and maintain the standard of living. And what is very interesting for me is because of the way the market was structured with defined contribution funds, how many of you were in trustee meetings when people were looking at the returns? How good did we do over the last three years? Have we got the best performing manager? If we don't have the best performing, we move to the next one. Um, it was very returns orientated. I'm sure you'll agree with me. It was never focused on this particular outcome. It was never focused on maintaining a living standard. It was focused on chasing the returns. And I think there's a lot of changes now and technology and things that actuaries can bring to the table to let us refocus not just on returns, but on the liabilities and rather applying these kinds of things. So what does that mean for us? I, I remember I told you originally, defined contribution funds, it was a one-size-fits-all. Uh, you'll recall that balanced funds, was, that, that was what was used, and everybody was in it, whether you were age 20, 30, 40, 50, whether you had lots of savings, whether you preserved or didn't preserve, everybody got the same return, which understandably, from, if you're moving from a DB fund into DC, it, it sort of makes sense. Everybody was used to getting the same. You've got to you know, smooth things and bring them into. People didn't understand if they're going to get different returns. But where we are today is very different. We then introduced in the market uh, a thing called life stage. And life stage investing was the first realization that actually people are different. They have different needs, desires. And for that particular objective of getting an income, we realized that in theory, you don't want people closer to retirement who have saved for 40 years and are able to achieve their income, putting them at too much risk. But it also depends on what kind of income they want in retirement. So you needed to make sure that what you invest before and after retirement 
Oh, there's a smooth glide path between those. And for many, many years, LifeStage was uh, adopted. And today, I think most funds, if you look at a lot of the surveys out there, actually use LifeStage, which is, has been really good. I think has achieved what it was supposed to achieve. And together with it, it, uh, it allowed funds to introduce member investment choice where people uh, felt it important to, to have that kind of choice. Now, what I'd like to ask is, is life, the current life stage, the way it's structured, is it working? Is it appropriate? Do we need to rethink it? So I give you an example of two individual members. Here we've got John and we've got Vusi. So both John and Vusi are now 55 years old. So in the current life stage range, or however it's structured in the current approach, which is typically phasing you down based on your age, they would get start getting phased down into lower equity components. Uh, something, and then based on, for example, to target the default that the trustees have set. The difference here, and what's interesting is both John and Vusi earn the same. They earn 100,000 Rand per annum. They both save the same amount currently, 20%. However, uh, John's fund credit is only 500,000 for various reasons, including he didn't save enough previously, he started his job late, maybe he, you know, because of education, uh, other things that happened before age 55. Vusi, on the other hand, is in a better position. He has one million rand. And what I'd like to remind you is this is a reality in South Africa. If all members were equal, if everybody, when they get to retirement, had saved fully for the full period, then this would, then that'd be the same. And the, you know, the, the current life stage may actually be okay. The reality is we've got different people with different savings histories. They worked in different employers. They had different contribution rates, different needs and different things that happened. Some of them converted from DB to DC, got enhancements, others didn't. Our system needs to allow for these factors and the kind of investment strategies and defaults, we can't just have a one size fits all. Even a life stage, Although a good first step is still not good enough, we need to find better ways of, of doing that. And if we look at, for example, if our focus is on income, and remember I showed you, you don't want to have volatility of income, you want a smooth ride. Surely that is the main objective of a retirement fund, to have a decent, sustainable income. It's not to give you the best return, it's to give you a decent income. If you use that as the objective, and we use then probabilities to measure those, you can see that John's circumstances are, based on his current circumstances, his probability to get a replacement ratio of greater than 50% uh, is 64%. His probability to get a replacement ratio of eight or greater than 80%, which we, as we know with a lot of research is, should probably be considered a minimum, people probably need more, he probably has a zero probability of getting there. So why would his investment strategy be equally appropriate for him and Vusi? Vusi, on the other hand, has a near certain probability that he'll get to a 50% replacement ratio. It's near certain because of how much he's saved, what he's done, etc. He's got a 47% probability to get a replacement ratio of greater than 80. So he doesn't, for that particular objective, he no longer needs to take the same risk uh, and growth that uh, John needs for a similar time. Again, admittedly, there's other factors. The, the, the one can retire earlier than the other, etc. The bottom line is they're not the same. 
So why do we have the same glide path uh, and life stage strategy for those two individuals? We need to start moving to something that recognizes not just your age and term to retirement, but other factors. So what you actually need is uh, a concept called individual uh, DC, which is really looking at each individual member, their particular income requirements, and optimizing uh, the income and replacement for each individual member based on a set of parameters. And it is possible with, uh, and that's why I said with actuaries, uh, the kinds of things that we can do in terms of optimization, these are the kinds of roles and things that we should be looking at uh, to make, to ensure that we get better, better outcomes. So in Vusi's case, we should make sure that for op what's optimal for him in our default is different from what is optimal uh, for John. And the other thing is that um, you can't just look at your investment mandates the, the way that you've done in the past. How many of you have defined contribution uh, funds where your bond mandate is the Orbi? Um, I would say most of you. Uh, is, your, is your bond mandate structured to match income? Probably not. Um, it's really focusing on returns and traditional approaches. And the measurement of the success of your overall portfolio is based on return versus all be, not return versus your objective. So what I'm trying to show here is that typically in a retirement fund, what you're trying to achieve is a pension. And we use your proxy uh, an annuity uh, to provide an inflation-related income. And just to show that there's a mismatch between what's happening on the asset side and what's happening on the liability side. And that's why we need to rethink our investment mandates um, to be more liability cognizant, whereas most mandates out there are very return focused and the two are not, uh, are not marrying. And it was quite interesting. Um, I mean, in South Africa, there are techniques being applied on the defined benefit uh, to match cash flows, to do liability driven investments. And I think the time is now to start looking at defined contribution funds and applying those same techniques in those investment strategies to ensure that they're more optimal uh, for your individual members. Here's a, a period back in June to, in July 2003. Um, let's call this uh, a VUSI. VUSI needed 5,500 Rand. That's what he needed. He didn't care. He didn't want... It wasn't about his RAND value, uh, asset base, or how much he saved returns. He, he came to you and said, I want 5,500 RAND. That's my objective. To get that, the cost of it was 1.8 million RAND. And that's based on securing an annuity, which as we know, varies uh, with long-term dated uh, inflation-linked bonds um, for this particular kind of uh, annuity securing an income. Um, his, his investment value was only 1.5 million, so he could only afford 80% of what he needed. One month later, um, although his return was negative, he had a ne negative 3.91% uh, return. The fact was that the, the cost of the liabilities actually improved, so he had a positive return on the liability side, which offset the negative on the investment side. Um, so what I'm trying to get at here is that what you want is a more smoother ride on your investment strategy. A, look at the individual member, not just term to retirement. Look at other factors like how much the person has saved, 
What is his retirement goal? And optimizing for that. And secondly, structuring investments in a more optimal way using techniques that we actually do have available in defined benefit funds but applying it in defined contribution. And here's an example of how you can smooth the ride for VUSI. The um, pink line, I think it is there. I'm a little bit colorblind sometimes when it comes to these things. You can see how it's been moving as the cost of purchasing an income changes. And the green line is a portfolio that's been structured around that particular objective. The portfolio is not there to outperform the next manager and give you the best return. It is there to give you a good return, definitely, but within focusing on the liabilities. And you can see the smoothing is far greater, far better um, than what you get based on current approaches. And the last thing I'd like to just point out on the investment side is on sustainable in, uh, investing. And you'll ask me, but how is this relevant? Because sustainable investing is about SRI, it's about infrastructure, it's about d uh, doing good. I actually think that actuaries have a role to play here in improving the outcome for the individual member by focusing on sustainable investing because it has an impact on the liabilities. So let's take an example. Uh, if you were to invest based purely on to maximize return, what does it mean? You're going after maximum return profits. It could drive you to short-term behavior and not the long-term. But what happens in the long-term? On the right-hand side, you can see lots of pollution, lots of things happening. It might not have an impact today, but your, your term is 40 years. You're advising a pension fund on 40 years from now. What does chasing the return now mean in 40 years? Who's, who of you have seen the movie called Elysium? It's a movie where eventually the whole planet is in such a state that only the billionaires, the multi-billionaires, are able to have a reasonable living standard, not on Earth, but they have a space station and set up up in the sky with a whole lot of things. Now what that means is we were chasing maximum returns on Earth. It then led to massive inflation to sustain a reasonable income in retirement. So to achieve that replacement ratio, you needed to be eventually a billionaire. And I think these are kinds of things that you need to start taking into account. We need to take into account sustainable investing in the liabilities. Uh, currently, we don't. I think if you look at uh, the way uh, you know, pension fund meetings are run, typically in your IPS, you'll tick uh, you know, your SRI component. This, and, and, and unfortunately, when I go to a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of trustees are of the view that their, their role is to maximize the return for their members because the members need a good return to live. What they're forgetting, though, is that for those people to live, you need good infrastructure, you need running water, um, you, know, you need a stable society, and it's not just about today, it's about in 40 years' time. So you need to balance these things. And what I've shown over there is a slide where if you maximize return at the bottom, you can impact your replacement ratio negatively on a downward. So you can get the best return ever, but your replacement ratio will go down and you will not make it to Elysium um, you know, if, if things continue as is. And I think it's up to actuaries to actually educate trustees, help them see these things, because after all, we are there to look at the long term, to look at the 40 years. So in closing on my section, uh, before I hand over to Kelsey, on investment options, we need to look at 
not the average individual. We need to look at each individual based on their objectives, and we need to redesign life stage uh, investment strategies, looking not just at one factor, but many factors and optimizing that. Secondly, we need to look at techniques that we use on the defined benefit side to optimize the investments, specifically looking at liability-driven investments and, and, and that. And thirdly, make sure that those investments and liabilities are sustainable in the long term and educating our clients uh, to ensure that they do eventually get to Elysium. Thank you very much. Um, so John touched a bit on moving away from a one-size-fits-all benefits design approach and moving more towards individualized risk benefits, and that's what I want to talk about in this first section of my part of the presentation. But I wanted to start with a question. So could everybody get out their little voting remote thing? So what do you see as the primary purpose of a retirement fund? For you, is it to provide a savings vehicle for any purpose for members? Is it to provide affordable access to risk benefits? Provide. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, the question says, what do you see as the ambit of a retirement fund? Are they there? Okay. Um, well, now you can all see the options. Um, so, what is it to provide a savings vehicle for any purpose? Affordable access to risk benefits? A cost effective means to ensure overall well being of members? to provide a savings vehicle for members' retirement only, or to provide security of income both during employment and after retirement. Vote now. Okay. So everybody's mostly agreed that the primary purpose of a retirement fund is to provide security of income both during employment and after retirement. Well, I'm glad you said that, because then you're in agreement with what we've said in our latest edition of Benefits Barometer. So, <clears throat> What we saw in Benefits Barometer 2013 was that in order to best meet people's needs, we needed to achieve financial, mental, and physical well-being. Now, physical and mental well-being are easier to understand, but financial well-being may be unfamiliar to some of you. And that is ensuring that people have enough protection in place during their lifetimes to protect them against anything that life throws in their path. So that's risk-benefit protection as well. And, excuse me, retirement funds can provide that. So if we look at the issues reported to ICAS, a large South African wellness provider, we see that relationship issues are some of the major things that they have to deal with. And relationship issues may stem from money management problems and things like that. And in order to achieve, in order to best meet people's needs, we might have to address some of those issues through risk benefits. Um, so. I took a sample of some of our data from the Alexander Forbes Member Watch data set. And what I wanted to illustrate here was we've got seven different members. There's five males and two females, and they're all different ages, all with different pensionable salaries, all working in different industries. But the surprising thing here is that the design of their benefits is very similar. They've all got the same retirement age, and all of them have the same death benefit multiple. Now that's surprising because somebody in the construction industry who's age 34, that's member number four, he's got the same death benefit multiple as member number one, who's only three years away from retirement. But member number one might need maybe less death benefits to cover and a greater allocation towards retirement savings. 
So what we need to do is start thinking about how we can tailor benefits better to meet individuals' needs. This diagram here just summarizes that. So we're giving everybody the same multiple of cover, the pink dots, but as we can see, the need for benefits actually varies with age. So somebody who's, say, in their early 20s might need a higher multiple of cover than somebody who's approaching retirement because that person has a lower fund credit and they're just starting out in their lives, they've got a young family that they need to protect. So how can we move away from what we're currently offering people, that static three or four times death benefit multiple, towards something that be better meets their needs? And what we're proposing here is um, multiples of salary that vary according to age. So here's an example of what we could offer. Say three times multiple for a person who's under the age of 25, then that would increase as they begin to grow their family or as they begin to um, collect debt. So seven times might be more appropriate for them. And then that would decrease again as they approach retirement. But individualizing our risk benefits involves a trade-off. So that 25-year-old new fund member who joins and who plans to stay in the fund for, for a savings period of 40 years and retire at the age of 60, if we had to look at an example of what this specific life stage or individualized risk benefits approach would do to his replacement ratio outcomes, we would see that if he started off with a contribution rate of 15.4% after administration and disability benefit costs, that if he applied just a flat multiple of salary as his death benefit, he would have a replacement ratio of 64.7%. But if we gave him that age-related structure that I showed you before, his replacement ratio would drop to 63%. Now, that looks like quite a small difference, but in terms of the value that that adds to the person's life, that can make a big difference to that member in giving him more of the cover that he needs and less of the cover that he doesn't need. So here's another question for you. How effective are replacement ratios at targeting as a target for members in planning their retirement? Okay, so um, do you want to vote now then? Okay, so most people have said we need a more comprehensive target than replacement ratios if we're going to determine a more optimal balance. Well, that's good to know. I think that was more just for our sake, of just interest sake, just knowing what people want to know uh, whether we should move away from replacement ratios. I think I'm going to hand back to John now so he can talk about efficiency within benefit structures. Thanks, Kelsey. We're playing a little bit of uh, music chairs, yeah? Um, I think some of you would ask, well, I mean, why is this relevant? Um, and the reason is, uh, if you go into a trustee meeting today and you'd ask the trustees, what is the objective of the fund? They would say it's to get the best pension. That's it. To maximize. The reality is that it's, it's not actually that. If you go back to first principles in the Pension Funds Act, there are actually various things that you need to take into account. As I mentioned right at the start, it's to make sure that there's a reasonable income in retirement and also that there's a reasonable uh, income for dependents uh, you know, when, when the breadwinner passes away. And what's often happened is that the second part has been, uh, hasn't been focused on enough. Uh, so for example, when we converted from DB to DC, what did we do? We looked at projection statements, looked at the retirement benefits, et cetera, 
and we just added a two times multiple here, three. We forgot about the second part. And in many uh, funds, in terms of their, their policies, if you look at the policies in terms of PF130, most of them would state our main objective is to ensure reasonable retirement income. We've forgotten about the second part. What this part is saying is that you actually have a dual purpose. And, and uh, sorry, the reason why people do it is because the more you spend on risk benefits, the lower it goes to retirement or the more you have to increase the contribution. But that is the trade-off that we're talking about where uh, actuaries can really help uh, employers, trustees, weigh up the trade-off. In certain industries, death benefits are more important. Funeral benefits are more important. Retirement benefits are the least important. Um, do you, does anybody here know what uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You all know what it's all about. It's a little pyramid and at the bottom uh, it says that the basic human needs are secure, shelter, having food, and then you know inclusion, you know with, with different people, and then you build up all the way to what is called self-actualization, which is, you know, for each person could mean a different thing. Now, similarly, within the financial industry, you have a similar hierarchy of needs. At the very basic, for low-income individuals, it's about protection. It's about safety and security. So the main thing, and we did some research around this, looking at people of various segments. For them, it's about housing. It's about funeral benefits, protecting the family. Guess where retirement funding fits? Nowhere. It doesn't feature. No wonder a lot of the people, especially below a certain uh, income bracket, are not saving for retirement or they're not preserving. They're using it for another purpose. And in the context of South Africa, that is appropriate because that's where they fit within the hierarchy of needs. As you move up the, the pyramid, then you start seeing things like medical aid becoming important, uh, an RA becoming important, pension becoming important. But what we've done is we've lumped everybody into the same and we've forgotten about the pyramid. So what is important that you need to start looking at your clients and, and trustees need to start looking at their members. What mix of members? What industry am I in? Where does it fit within this hierarchy of needs? And then what are the trade-offs? And here, for example, you can see uh, uh, Rivash. He's a male aged 40. He has a debt level of 300,000. He's got two children. And you can see various contribution rates. And we've also then compared him to Loratu. Um, which is a female aged 41 um, and also with various debt levels. And what we find very interesting, and you don't need to look at the detail of all of this, a fixed benefit structure is the most suboptimal across all the members, irrespective of what their circumstances are. Yet the majority of our risk benefits structured in South Africa, 90% on a fixed multiple basis. And that is really, and this isn't really a new idea. Many of you say, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's been said before. Uh, the reality is the message isn't coming through. And as a result, to meet TCF, to make sure that needs are met, that outcome two that Lizzie talks about, have you looked at a needs analysis, making sure that your benefit structure is appropriate to meet the needs? Is it appropriate if it is fixed multiple, yet it's not meeting the needs? And we can show mathematically, for most members, it is suboptimal. 
And this is just a demonstration. <coughs> I mean, we can talk about the detail um, you know, at, at another session. But really, this spider graph tries to look at what is efficient. And it looks at the trade-off between retirement benefits and death benefits. And really, the funding level between those two, if it were to happen. And quite simplistically, if you get to 100, it's the most efficient benefit structure possible. It assumes that you have infinite resources available. Um, and obviously, the lower you get to zero, it's the most inefficient structure. Now, what is interesting about this is to make things better, you possibly contribute more. So you can see for all of the individuals over there, they, the, the, the little bars are moving out. It's because people are contributing more. Makes sense. If you're able to contribute more, you can do more things. But what is interesting, <coughs> sorry, is that even if you were to contribute the same, but you change the benefit structure, it can also improve the outcomes um, for the individuals. And here we've done an example where we looked at if you structure the thing as a life, a life stage kind of approach with limited individual choice for the individuals, it can make a massive approach. And what is very interesting is if you look at the one bar, um, even if you contribute more and maximize retirement savings, actually the efficiency, the most optimal outcome is actually lower. Why is that? Because now you're focusing more on retirement and it means that the shortfall on death is even worse relative to what you could have done with the available resources uh, that you have. So I think all we're trying to say here is that people need to step back Relook at the purpose of a retirement fund. It actually has a dual purpose. It's about retirement income as well as for the income for dependents. And we focused <coughs> sorry, way too much on the retirement side and too little on, on the other side. And this is a, a great example of how actuaries can use actuarial techniques to quantify these things and you know, uh, explain to clients, yes, you might be paying a little bit more on the risk benefit side, but look at what it is doing for the overall financial well-being of your individuals. I'll let Kelsey uh, take on to the next section, but let's, let's have a quick vote, um, you know, the next, the next question. And the question is, to what extent do you believe there is value in a default strategy where the member's risk uh, coverage varies over their course of employment? So what we're trying to say here is that just a typical structure where you have uh, uh, based on age, trying to meet people's needs a bit better. It's not worth the additional complexity or cost you know, for various things. Or it's a good idea. Um, or it's a good idea but members may not always understand. Or we need to get a little bit more sophisticated than that and go even further to make sure we have targeted solutions. Um, so you can vote. Okay, well, let, can we redo this one? Well, do a retest there. So remember, press the, press the okay. Ah, oh, that's looking good. Thanks, thanks, Arthur. Appreciate it. Now we can see some movement there. Get your votes in. Okay, well, I think now we've got a statistically uh, reasonable sample to make some inference about what's happening here. Um, and I think you make quite a good point because I think the, 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 the majority is uh, three and four. 
Um, so I think everybody's in agreement. You know, we need to start focusing a little bit better on the needs. Obviously, we need to address the communication issue, and that's what you're highlighting here. I'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, what is very pleasing for me is that you all support the concept of moving to a more targeted individual approach. Um, so I think that's, that's really great. So I'll hand over to Kelsey to take you uh, forward. Okay, so the next section is risk sharing in DC funds. And I've subtitled this, the ABCs of fund design. And John mentioned to you before that we were exploring this new concept that they're using in the UK or they're exploring in the UK of defined ambition funds. So we all know about defined benefit and defined contribution, but defined ambition funds, for those of you who are unfamiliar with them, aim to actually give more certainty to the member about what their final benefit will be when they retire than under a pure DC fund. And they also aim to reduce the cost volatility to the employer than under a pure DB fund. So we could have DA funds from a DB starting point or from a DA, a DC starting point. For us, obviously, a defined contribution starting point would be more relevant. Um, so how could we do this? It would involve some sharing of risks, so longevity risk and investment risk. And what it might involve is the use of guarantees and funds as well. Now, in the UK, one of the motivations they gave for wanting to introduce risk sharing in DC funds was that employees felt that they'd lost their connection with their employees. Employees didn't really see their employee benefits as valuable anymore, and they wanted to then give them something that they could see as important. And one of the most basic ways of providing a guarantee in a DC fund is if we say promised employees that as a final benefit, their minimum benefit would it be, would be a return of all their contributions paid into the fund. So that's just a simple example, but there are other ways that we could share risks within the fund. Now, whether or not that'll work in South Africa remains to be seen. Um, DC funds are something that most employers actually love. They don't want to take on those risks. But the reason I brought this up was because I wanted to know from you whether you think that DA funds could possibly work in South Africa, or whether or not they are actually happening, whether any of you have introduced them with your clients or are thinking about sharing risks within funds. So I've got two questions here. What would the reaction of South African employers be to risk sharing in DC funds? Do you think it'll be positive? They might welcome the chance to reconnect with members. Negative, at first, although they might warm to the idea, negative, they will not want to take on the cost of guarantees, or you're not sure. Vote now. Oh, and press OK. <laughs> negative, they won't want to take on the cost of guarantees. Interesting. Okay, and if we were to introduce risk sharing through a guarantee, how could it be done? Do you think we need to smooth investment returns, price the guarantee and use reserves, or would we need some new method? Vote now. Okay, well, that was just a short section. I just wanted to introduce some of the things that were happening overseas. Um, but now, just to bring us back to something that's more prevalent to the South African case, the use of defaults. 
So we all know that National Treasury is thinking a lot about using defaults, and the one that I wanted to talk about specifically today was auto-escalation. So when it comes to DC funds, we all know that we've transferred investment risk, longevity risk, and inflation risk to the members. But one of the things that we don't really talk about a lot is the fact that we've transferred planning risk to members as well. We've given them the responsibility of planning for the next 40 years of their lives and deciding when they need to retire, what contribution rates they need, all of those types of things that some of them are not always equipped to do. So if we had to look at what are the seven things that affect member outcomes the most, in order, we see that number one is whether the member preserves, number two, whether contributions are a meaningful proportion of salary, when those contributions start, the allocation of contributions between risk benefits and retirement savings, costs, the long-term asset allocation strategy, the additional value from fund managers above the long-term asset allocation strategy, and to me, What's important here is that the top three things in those lists have to do with the decisions that members make. So we can see that members aren't making the best decisions that they, sh or that they could make for themselves. So maybe they need a little bit of help through the use of defaults. If we had to look at a basic example of how defaults work, we could look at organ donation in various countries around the world. So there are two models for organ donation. The first is where the person opts out of a mandatory organ donation program, so everybody is forced to become an organ donor, and then they can choose to opt out of the program. Or organ donation is not compulsory for all citizens, and people choose to opt into the program. And in countries where the program is an opt-in, you can see that the percentage of people who are actually part of the organ donation program are 4.3% in Denmark. 27.5% in the Netherlands, really low rates. But in countries where there's um, opt-out, we've got really high proportions of people who are all organ donors. So defaults can really change member behavior and hopefully give them better outcomes. So now onto my example of auto-escalation. I did some basic calculations to show what the impact of auto-escalation could be on member outcomes. So if we took a 25-year-old new fund member who plans to retire at the age of 65, his employer is contributing at a fixed rate of 10%, the member's contributing initially at 7.5%, and the contributions are increasing at a fixed rate of 1% every single year, up to a maximum of 27.5%, which is aligned to that tax-deductible limit. Um, this model here, this first example, will look at whether, uh, what happens to contributions that increase by a fixed percentage every year. So the replacement ratio without auto-escalation could be 66.7%, but with a fixed percentage increase, that member's replacement ratio could be up to 84.8%. That's a massive difference. Now, increasing member contribution rates up to 27.5% might not be good for them. They might not enjoy that. So what if we did something that was more palatable to the member? If we look at average annual real salary increases over the last couple of years, we see that most members have enjoyed decent real salary increases. People between the ages of 30, 25 and 35 have had up to 9% real salary increases. And for people between the ages of 55 and 65, those have been slightly low, but still they've been achieving real salary increases. So what if we use the model that took salary increases as a, um, the escalation rate as a percentage of salary increases? Now this is the methodology used in the Save More Tomorrow paper. Um, some of you may have already read that. 
um, and all it did was exactly what I'm describing here. It, it took a percentage of their, uh, of their annual salary increases and increased members' uh, contribution rates to see what their replacement ratios could be. So that same new fund member that I described earlier, all we're doing is we're applying a merit scale to his salary increases. And his increases initially will be 1% of his annual real salary increase. His contribution rate in the year before retirement ends up being 18.6%. So his projected replacement ratio without auto escalation is 66.7%, but with auto escalation, it's 69.3%. It's a slight difference, but remember that all we're doing is we're taking 1% of whatever that real salary increase is. So it's a 3% change in the contribution rate, essentially, but it increases the, the replacement ratio, the outcome that he could achieve. What if we then increase that escalation rate up to 3%? The contribution rate in the year before retirement ends up being 20.9%, and his outcome at retirement is now 74.6%. It's a decent outcome. It's something that members, most members today aim to achieve. So will auto-escalation work in South Africa? The inflation history that I showed you was only for a small segment of the population. And aggressive increments can increase the chances of people's take-home pay failing, uh, take-home pay falling. So we need to be cognizant of the increment that we use. Um, those with the lowest incomes are the least likely to opt out of defaults. So what's important here is that we need to communicate this properly and we need to give education and advice around the order escalation. High employee turnover in South African funds is also another issue to consider. Um, so what we could do is ensure that either all companies who are employing this use the same method, so everybody has the same rate of contribution and same escalation applied at various ages, and it might work better. And another point is that auto escalation may work well in bargaining council funds, because even though people may be changing employers over their lifetime, they'll remain in the same fund. Things that we need to be wary of is setting that initial contribution rate too low because it doesn't really matter how high the escalation rate is, then we'll never end up with a reasonable or a, a reasonable enough contribution rate to get people to a decent outcome. We also need to be wary of setting the increment between contribution levels too low and capping the contribution rate at a low level. Uh, thanks, Kelsey. So clearly, I mean, you can see there's quite a lot that we can actually do. Who said uh, defined contribution funds were boring? Um, yeah, I've got an, uh, a last little section just around financial education and communication, and I think we can open up uh, to the floor because I think there's probably a couple of ideas here, and maybe we can facilitate some discussion um, towards the end. This section looks at engaging, and uh, you'll all remember the communications paper that you had to write. That's what this is about except that things have moved on quite a lot. A lot of us uh, didn't make the communications paper the first time. We had to write it multiple times. Actuaries are very good at looking at all the numbers, but not the communication. And I think this section tries to help you in a defined contribution fund. Communication can be more important than actually the technical things in the background, because it's how you communicate that actually will get people to do the right things. As an example, um, for years we, we've been producing as actuaries excellent, what we consider excellent reports to trustees telling them about replacement ratios and doing this and this model and that model. Um, 
And I have many clients that did nothing with that. Um, I think it was great information. They would you know, say that you know, we need to improve communication, but no actual action was taken. So we did a little experiment and we translated it, the same mathematics, into an entertaining video. A video with some cartoons, a clip, a thing. And imagine, guess what happened? Those funds, very, quite a few of them started increasing their retirement age. They influenced the employer to do that. And who would have thought that the employer would in fact increase normal retirement age? Why would they do that? It's from how the message was communicated. Many funds increased the, where this experiment was done, increased the contribution rates, or at least the categories of it, to, because previously they thought it might be too complex, they actually opened it up. And members that actually saw this actually increased the contributions. We actually got a lot of claim, uh, 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 contribution forms to increase savings. In a society where generally people consider people won't save, they will save. It's, you just need to help them and engage in a better way. So what's over here is some principles and we need to rethink it. Those smart uh, statements that we produce, they're very well written, legally they're compliant, they do all, they're actually not going to change the game. They're not going to. And if we look at the, the increasing regulation, increasing legalities, increasing things, we typically, what we do with our communication is we focus on protecting ourselves. We make sure that the disclaimers are there, this is that. What we don't do is test whether this piece of communication will result in the outcome that you want, which is either save more, preserve more, uh, you know, reduce your debt, do all these things. So it is possible uh, to make a difference, but the way we're doing it now has to change as a result. And this is just a stat that actually confirms that. Um, we actually looked at lots of literature overseas, looking at financial education, and many of you will know that billions and billions of dollars are actually spent on financial education programs. Employers spend it. In your organization, you probably spend money on financial education. Have you ever tried to measure the success of it? Is it having an impact? Did it make a difference? Probably what you'll find is it isn't. Why? because you're not engaging with the people. Um, and some of the research we did recently on financial services, maybe you know, people in the audience here know, well, how do people find financial services? They find it scary, scary, boring, and stressful. So what do we need to do? We need to make it not so scary. We need to make it exciting. And we need to take the stress away. So this whole Scare, trying to scare people, the scare factor, the shock factor. We need to try and you know, balance a lot of things. And the challenge is to make things engaging. Um, because if you don't do this, and it sounds strange to be saying this at an actuarial conference, if we don't do this, all the work that we've done, the impact that you're going to have is going to be less than if we did do it. Um, so let's have a look at some of the principles of what you could actually do. And there's nine over there to help engage people better. Um, I'll take you through them. Um, first one is teachable moments. How many of you, when you're you know, producing a communication exercise, it's a broad brush communication, here are your retirement options, here's your this, when you retire, you take an annuity, a life annuity, and here, oh, you're 20 years old, here you go. They're not going to listen. 
teachable moments is about specific life events when people have the most, uh, when they're most engaged and most likely to be engaged with what you are telling them. So when they change jobs, when they switch, that is the point. How you communicate will impact the success of improving preservation. Uh, when they have a, uh, get married, uh, assuming you have the data, that is when you can say, you're now married, you need to increase your saving, you will probably find people much more engaged and actually taking action. Uh, recently, um, my, uh, my son was born, and before that, I never thought about risk benefits. But I'm in the financial services industry. Actually, I was underinsured, quite interestingly enough. But what did I do? My wife forced me to <laughs> look at all the forms. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but that's the point. And she influenced me, and I had to go through this whole process. And you know what? Yes, it, it's a process, but you know what? I got more insurance. I actually engaged. And across the road from me, people, they also got a, a baby. Um, and it, guess what? Exactly the same thing happened. They had endless nightmares with the HR department, but you know what? They stuck to it. They got it. They got it done. It is a teachable moment. So instead of having broad brush, focus on life events. You will probably get a much better outcome. Just-in-time education is also making sure, and that's the second principle, giving people enough information. To make it technically sound when you give a, a, a communication piece that covers everything, it's brilliant. You know, it does this, it does that. You will lose, you will lose people. The teachable moment is you've just, um, your son was just born, you probably underinsured, please go and have a look. And the same for things like disability and, and all of those things apply. High level, and I think it's int we need to start looking, and I think that's a plea maybe to the legal industry and uh, within the regulations, we need to start looking at those issues because that's what will ha actually have an impact. Not these long lists of things to do, um, which is actually not having the impact that we, we actually wanted to have. Uh, understanding bandwidth, and that all, uh, that's the third one. When people get more and more scared about things, they just lose, they just, it's, it's out of their, their reach. And it talks to that issue that I talked about earlier. People find retirement funding scary. We must stop scaring them. We must, you know, tell them, encourage them, give them a dream, make it optimistic. Uh, otherwise, the, the work that we do is not going to be impactful. Rules of thumb, and I think that's where we've been pretty good as an industry with the rules of thumb. For example, historically, you had to say 15% to get, and that was, that was correct. We just must remember to update those rules of thumb because today you need to save more than that typically to actually get there. Defaults are very important to engage with members better. And I talked earlier about more sophisticated uh, defaults. And we need to be exploring those because Kelsey showed you if, you if you do defaults properly, it will have a massive impact in the outcome at the end of the day. And things like smart defaults, which is the individual DC concept I talked about earlier, looking at factors not just term to retirement, but rather how much the person has saved, what their goal is, what their budget is, and then structuring on a default basis something better for them is certainly going to be more, more optimal. And here's where actuaries come in, is principle number seven, translating the future into present. There's in uh, behavioral finance this thing called hyper, hyperbolic discounting. It's a big word. Um, what it basically means, and many of you would know that, is that people, va they value today and they don't value 
20 years from now, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's tomorrow, we'll, we'll worry about it then. It's about the now, it's about today. So the challenge for us is to translate tomorrow into today's terms. And that's where I think actuaries can, can have a really good impact uh, on individuals because we are able to look for 40 years and with various assumptions, various things, translate it into a value today. And we can also then help people uh, with principle eight, understanding the trade-offs. If you spend, if you reduce your take-home pay, yes, it's going to reduce, but look at what happens with your retirement savings one day. And I was driving uh, this weekend, <clears throat> I did a little bit of uh, paragliding in the mountains and we had about an hour and a half drive. And a friend of mine who is in the marine industry, we were talking about it and he actually got this concept about understanding the value of tomorrow today and the trade-offs. And he was under a lot of pressure with his girlfriend to spend more and do things. But he actually, he looked at the numbers, looked at the things, I talked to him about this, and guess what? He is saving more, despite the desire to go and buy the new motorbike and do the things. So people can change if we do the right things, and if you apply these principles. And then the last thing is the right incentives. Uh, you know, people respond to incentives. So I think structuring incentives, you know, around savings, we need to think about that a little bit smartly, uh, but that's probably a topic uh, for another day. So, I mean, yeah, all in all, before I hand over to Kelsey, I think there's a lot that needs to be done. And I think when Rowan did the uh, voting at the beginning, uh, I think you asked the question about what should we be doing more? Is it investment strategies? Is it this? And what I found very interesting is many of you actually said communication. I think that was one of the big, big topics that we're not doing correctly. You said investments, I think we're doing fine, we're doing and communication. And I think we need to relook at it completely um, and look at some of the new things that are out there. And perhaps, you know, in the actuarial syllabus, we maybe need to look at some of the things as well because a lot of the great technical work isn't being translated into good outcomes for individual members. So I'll hand over to Kelsey on the last section, monitoring design, and then we'll wrap up uh, because I'm sure you guys are all hungry. So we all know that we need to monitor systems that we put in place, but how often do we actually monitor the design of our fund to see whether it's actually achieving the outcomes that we tell members it's going to achieve and that we think it's going to achieve? When we ask ourselves about retirement funds, we need to ask, is the structure or design capable of delivering the goods? And have we measured what actually happens at the individual member level? Do we understand what dynamics inhibit the translation of good concepts into good results? So I have two questions for you now about monitoring the design of funds. How important do you believe it is for a DC fund to set targets on behalf of its members? Unequivocally, yes. Yes, as long as it's communicated appropriately. There's too much debate around appropriate targets for individuals for us to advocate their use at fund level. Only if we change our current thinking about how we set targets, or no, we don't need to set targets at a DC fund level. Okay, so most of you have said yes, as long as it's communicated appropriately. Well, that's surprising because most funds are still using a target of 75%, 
And what I want to show you today is that most funds can't actually achieve that target with the design of the fund. So here's another question then. On a scale of one to five, how important is it to measure the success of meeting of members in meeting their targets? It's of no discernible value. Some value, but it's too difficult. Of some value, it's fairly important or it's very important. Okay. So we all agree that it's important to measure whether the design of the fund is capable of meeting members' needs. And I wanted to talk you through an example of how we could actually measure whether the design of the fund can meet members' needs. So we took an example of a client within the public sector. This is a fairly large client of ours. And on the screen, you can see the inputs for the fund. They've got an average contribution rate of 23% going towards retirement savings. Um, their normal retirement age is 63, and for a new fund member joining the fund, he's got 40 years ahead of him. So for that new fund member joining the fund at the age of 23, he's got a projected replacement ratio of 94%. That sounds amazing, 94%. He is going to do so well, thanks to Peachy. So if we look at the rest of the fund members, up on the scatter plot here, we see the rest of the inputs for the fund as well. We've got a total contribution rate of 27%. Costs for risk benefits and administration are 4%. Um, and then we've got some assumptions for investment returns. There's normal retirement age. Then we've assumed that the pensionable pay percentage for the fund is 100%. And the scatter plot shows that most of our members are doing okay. They've got projected replacement ratios above 50%. And as John told you, some of our retirees are actually retiring with replacement ratios of 32%. So things are okay for this fund for the most part. There are only a couple of members in the danger zone, and those are people who are quite close to retirement. So we're not sure whether they've got money in other funds, whether they've changed jobs over their lifetime. But the thing here is that we've made an assumption about what that pensionable pay percentage for the fund is. Actually, it's only 60%. So now the orange dots show you what the true replacement ratios are as a percentage of total cost to company for these members are. That new fund member who had a projected replacement ratio of 94%, He's only got a replacement ratio of 57% based on his total cost to company. So what are we actually communicating to members? Are we communicating that 94%? Or are we communicating their true replacement ratio value of 57%? And this is what we need to be cognizant of. So what I wanted to show you today is how we could show clients, trustees, and employers different scenarios and different design parameters to change the conversation around design of funds to help them improve member outcomes. So let's say we wanted to improve things for that new member and for the rest of our fund. What could we do? So we could start by maybe decreasing the risk benefit costs and administration costs from 4% of pensionable pay to 3% of pensionable pay. And that takes that new member from 57% to 61%. What else could we do? We could try and increase the investment returns or increase the alpha for the fund, if our fund managers will allow us, so if they could perform. And let's say we increase that by 50 basis points. That new fund member goes up from 57% to 64% now. What else could we do? We could increase that retirement age from 63 to 66, and he now has 66% replacement ratio. Or we could also start him off saving earlier at 40, um, so that he has a saving period of 43 years instead of 40 years. And he now has a replacement ratio of 74%. That's based on his total cost to company. Finally, a number that is reasonable 
and that is true to what the member's picture will look like after he retires. So what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that we can achieve be better outcomes for members, changing the parameters for the fund. But some of these things need to be communicated differently to clients, trustees, and employers. And we also need to, uh, oh, so, sorry, before I get into that discussion, I also want to show you um, some preservation scenarios. So as actuaries, we, we need to show people different scenarios. And sometimes it's not as black and white as you either can't take any of your money or you need to preserve fully. What we can do is for somebody who is starting to save at the age of 23, if he had to take 10% of his fund credit at the, at the age of 30, his replacement ratio would only drop by 1% from 57 to 56. That's not such a big impact. Um, if he was to take 10% later on in life at the age of 55, we'd see a bigger impact on his fund credit. So for somebody who is closer to retirement, taking more of their fund credit, the impact of non-preservation is greater. So if we can demonstrate different scenarios to clients, we can show them that everything isn't as black and white as maybe regulators are making it out to be. Sorry, I've gone too far. Um, one thing that I wanted to discuss before we just ended off was um, bringing TCF home to us as actuaries. So, I don't know, should I get into it? Cool. Um, so outcome five of TCF says that products need to be promoted, uh, sorry, products need to perform as sold and described. And for us, it's important because when we're giving members projection statements, we make an assumption about what investment returns would be. And members often base their expectation of what their benefit will be in retirement off of those projection statements. It's becoming more onerous on us as actuaries to give them reasonable expectations now more than ever. Um, it's, it, okay, so I'm gonna hand back to John to just finish off and to just maybe make that last point a bit clearer. <laughs> Great, thanks everybody. Are you guys all hungry? <laughs> okay, we're almost done, um, and then I think we'll open up for some questions because I'm sure you've been uh, burning to ask a few questions. Maybe share some of your uh, knowledge and maybe some of your ideas. But I thought I'd close off. Um, hopefully we've demonstrated here today, I mean, there is a really huge and important role for actuaries to play in defined contribution funds. Actuaries are taught to look at uh, you know, the, the numbers, the trade-offs, looking at 40 years. These are the things that individuals need. Actuaries are also taught to apply judgment, to weigh up various things. So for example, instead of having a one-size-fits-all uh, benefit design, applying judgment for this particular in, uh, environment, for that particular employer in that particular industry, this is what's important. These are the trade-offs. Let's have a look at it. So. But we need to start re-looking at quite a lot of things. So, for example, I was chatting to Kelsey earlier <clears throat> just to find out about the current uh, pensions p syllabus. Firstly, a lot of student actuaries are almost discouraged from doing pensions, firstly because there's uh, perceived to be not a future uh, in that. And secondly, it doesn't really cover a lot of the, the things that we've been talking about today. But look at what value you can add. And I actually hopefully showed Clients where these things have been done, actually there was an impact. There was increased savings, different things. There's value really created. 
Um, so we need to relook at the syllabus, but also to ensure that it's needs-based. For those of you, um, I mean, I studied a long time ago, so it was about 10, 11 years ago that I did the last actuarial exam, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't changed. We were taught how to structure good, complex financial products and make sure that they are profitable commercially for businesses. We were not taught how to look at the needs of individuals, weighing it up, looking at the trade-offs, looking at that hierarchy of needs that I talked about, that is missing. So I think we need to, I think my, my personal opinion is to re-look at the syllabus, bring needs in there. Actuaries have a hugely important role to play in weighing up different needs, the judgment applied, and helping clients look at those different things. Also making sure that our advice and solutions are needs-based and fit for purpose. Kelsey showed you that, for example, on risk benefits, everything is the same. On retirement age, everything is the same. Starting to change, but we can't have a one-size-fits-all. Different because we have such a society with a massive Gini coefficient, different demographics, different types of work, different industries where people are desk-bound or uh, uh, blue-collar uh, workers. Surely the same thing is not applicable uh, all, all about. And then uh, a big thing for me is the application of actuarial techniques in defined contribution to make sure that we optimize benefit design. Because currently everything is structured around maximizing retirement, but not optimizing the entire benefit package throughout the journey of the individual. So I think we should start focusing a lot broader to, to not focus on maximizing retirement, but optimizing the journey from when a person starts all the way through into retirement. And I would also then start uh, encourage, and it's something that we've been talking about at a few sessions uh, in the last few years, is professionalizing guidance for modeling and, and assumptions in defined contribution. Because a lot of the tools that I just, uh, Kelsey just showed you, those are things that clients use, but that then sets expectations for what the members would get at a trustee level. It's quite important that we start getting some, uh, and we start designing the professional guidance for those things. They can have a big impact, but also we need to make sure that they're professionalized. And at the moment, I don't think there's, there's sufficient of that. And the last thing that I would put out there is, uh, Rosemary was talking about, should we take a, make defined contribution funds exempt or bring the, you know, make sure that they, valuations are done? She was talking about the value of checking assets and liabilities in a RAND basis. I would say that those are accounting issues. And yes, they are very important because they minimize the risk. But these issues are even more important. And I would suggest that should we not have a new role for actuary in DC, you used to have a DB uh, evaluator, you have a DC. And uh, if you think it's quite a strange idea, it actually does happen. And I, th I can't remember the country, it's either Spain or Chile, one of the countries. The actuary needs to certify the benefit structure that it is sustainable, suitable for individuals' needs, gone through a process. And because the actuary has, uh, you know, such a, in, in the position that they are in terms of professionalism, judging various things, they've actually created this role and all uh, schemes that employers put in place must be signed off on an annual basis by the actuary to make sure. So I don't know if that's the right model, but I think something like that would be really good because the actuary has been taught to weigh up all those different factors. So I'll put it out there for you. Um, I think we do have a few more minutes to maybe open to the floor for a couple of questions and comments. 
Any volunteers? We've got Rob. Rob Thompson, uh, thanks for a very exciting session. Um, I'd like to make three uh, queries, if I may. The first relates to, well, the first two relate to John and Vusi. Um, Vusi had more uh, assets than John. Uh, one would expect that he would have a, um, a lower r a level of relative risk aversion. By uh, giving, assuming that John has a higher relative risk aversion, you are um, putting him into a risk-seeking, um, um, he has an aspiration level, and you are deliberately putting him into a risk-seeking um, investment um, strategy, um, which, which I think is imprudent advice, because it's an imprudent, um, imprudent uh, utility function. You can break down all these, if you, if you have a, uh, you were showing two points on the, uh, on the cumulative distribution function. Um, if, if those are the only two points of interest, you could break that, that, uh, that, those preferences down into a utility function. It makes no sense as a utility function. You actually need to, to use utility functions that are meaningful. Uh, and I think as actuaries we should be doing that. Uh, so Vusi could put more into equities, in fact. And if I were John, I would sue you. Um, uh, then the second, the second point um, relates to the lifestyle strategy. Um, if, uh, say, log returns are not autocorrelated, then the, the, the standard deviation and the con confidence limits increase linearly over time. Um, so for a long time, a long period ahead, the confidence limits are, are very wide and for a shorter term ahead, they're relatively narrow. The fact that, um, re um, that returns might, or future returns might offset the unfortunate returns of the short term is irrelevant because this, the, the confidence limits are just going outwards and outwards in a linear funnel of doubt. Um, so I, I think that the lifestyle strategy is only working because people start worrying when they're in their 50s. Um, then, uh, but I agree with you that we need to move towards not just lifestyle but individual needs analysis. Then the third comment I have is that um, there was recently a, a, a research um, project undertaken at the behest of the faculty and the student faculty of actuaries on resource constraints and, the and its implications for actuaries. And uh, that report um, prognosticated that um, on, the mo on the more realistic scenarios for the future, we're looking at long-term real investment returns on the market portfolio of 0%. Not 4.5%, 0%. And so uh, uh, if we don't start taking on board resource constraints and their effect on the long-term future, of economic returns, we are driving this car looking out of the back window. Um, so, and Piketty also in his book on, on capital in the 21st century points out um, that with 2% growth after one millennium, your economy would have grown to a, by a factor of 400 million. So 
imagine, uh, uh, you know, 400 million times what our current world GDP is. Um, that's what you'd be looking at at 2% growth. So it's actually in the very long run, it's not sustainable. But even in the relatively short run, it's not sustainable because of the limits to growth, um, which you alluded to. Um, so actually, we've got to, we, we are more concerned about these things than the economists. The economists are only worried about how to advise politicians. Um, we've got to advise long-term funds. And uh, so I suggest that we should actually be uh, getting into um, questions about the future, about what sort of um, growth is sustainable uh, in the future and, and be using that, those growth rates and those returns on, on uh, assets um, uh, that, are co that are commensurate with those, um, the, the inability to continue growing as we have in the past. No, thanks for that. I think there's, there's actually quite a lot of good comments there, and I agree with a lot of what you've uh, said. So just, for, I mean, at the end, you talked about really the sustainability, and I think that really talks to, you know, our assumptions, um, making sure that it's professionalized. It's interesting, we did an exercise uh, quite recently looking at about 20-odd uh, different academic models for equity returns and growth. And most of those that are very rigorous gave quite low expected uh, growth rates. Yet we went out into the market to have a look at uh, with various uh, uh, providers, uh, including asset managers, etc., etc. And the expected long-term returns were vastly <coughs> above that, which means very optimistic assumptions in South Africa, expectations, and there's a very big difference between the academic literature on many of those because they were all around a uh, you know, very low rate. I think I mean, the, the rates that you were quoting are maybe at the very low, but the, the, I think the principle is still the same, and that is why we do need, because that is going to create uh, what is these reasonable benefit expectations? TCF, what is reasonable in that portfolio to get it? Uh, and I think there's just too big uh, a dispersion here. I just wanted to touch briefly on what you mentioned earlier. I definitely agree with you that we should be looking actually in theory at utility because utility would then uh, is a measure to help weigh up a person's preferences, their risks, other things, etc. Um, I think there's, a, there's actually been a lot of good work done um, you know, around those particular issues. So I think the illustration that we were showing is, is just another, ultimately you'd want to look at a utility kind of framework where based on an individual's utility, uh, you would have different uh, you know, investment defaults. It's just about you know, the, 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 what is available currently to make it a, a reality. The example we gave you is actually an ex of things that one could do right now based on optimization techniques. And I don't think John or Vusi would, would sue. And the reason I say that is because it's how you create the expectation. When we moved from one size fits all to life stage, one of the concerns was always, but my, my member age 55 is going to get a different return from my member age 30. What happens if it's positive or negative? It's about how you communicate and create the expectation and explain what this thing's trying to do. The example we gave here, although I would agree with you that it, it can be enhanced, you should be looking at utility. It actually focuses on retirement income and maximizing the probability. Yes, it's not about utility, it's about income maximization. And because of that, unfortunately, the one member does need to take more risk because of the probability. But we can talk a bit more about 
you, you know, some of the principles behind it. I think all we're trying to say is the current one-size-fits-all, and hopefully you'll agree, is it's not good enough. I think we need to start looking at better optimization techniques to address all of those things, um, you know, to, to make sure that we have better, uh, you know, investment defaults. Is there anybody else? Rowan, do we have some more time? Five more, five more minutes. Anybody? Sorry, John, it's uh, Neil here. Yes, this thing is quite loud. Anyway, um, yes, 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 that's good. Um, just on, on the individual needs of members, um, say, because uh, uh, up to a certain extent, you'll always have a one-size-fits-all type of approach. So into what level of detail will we actually delve down? Because if I just think quickly about three mates of mine, so yeah, all three of them are actuaries. One of them, say, married a uh, into a very rich family. One of them's got a wife who actually earns a salary that uh, that actually is more than him. And one of one of us married a a, a beautiful wife. Um, <laughs> so um, obviously, the the needs if one of us passes away um, would actually be quite different. So even at a face level, at a member level. It might seem that they all, all, all three is actually the same. So that's just the one thing. And then the, another thing that I think we need to be aware of is that our economy is a bit of a dichotomy. So it's almost like a first world and a third world country um, in, uh, within you know, one system. So I think that's just something that, that for some levels it might be good to still have a, a one-size-fits-all approach. And then the final question is, 85% uh, of, of retirement assets actually goes into living annuities, so I just want to know how you, how you took that into account. No, um, yeah, just in terms of the different needs of individuals, so yes, each person is unique. It is impossible for a fund to cater for that. Um, what we need to do is, and, uh, but, I th but I still think it is a great uh, thing to aspire for if you could ultimately get there. And I think there's a lot of new techniques, new things that people can do. The current, the current way things are in terms of it literally is one size fits all. We've just demonstrated a few things that you could actually do to improve it practically, uh, to improve it and make it better. These things are actually available. Uh, to the extent that they're available, I really think people should be thinking about it. And you will never, you will never get to uh, you know, the optimal for each individual. It's just impossible. And for, especially for the lucky person who's got the, the, the beautiful wife. And to be, to be politically correct, all wives are beautiful. So, okay? <laughs> because I, apparently this is being recorded, so if my wife is to this. <laughs> So, but you've got to do a combination of measures. Look at what a fund can realistically do with uh, the governance budget that you've got, your admin systems, the technology, the techniques, but then complement it with things like communication so that people themselves can start taking on, uh, you know, those, it, it, and looking at those individual things for themselves. Even if you just take out of today that the communication, that's great because a lot of the communication has been the same for 10, 15 years. And if you can do that, I promise you, those individuals, that group of people, they will have different responses to what you're doing, but the outcome is going to be uh, you know, far, far better. 
Um, I mean, yeah, in terms of living annuities, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a whole separate um, discussion. And I th but it does talk to the whole concept of a one-size-fits-all uh, default investment strategy. Um, and in terms of the National Treasury wanting to put in defaults, and certainly a lot of the research, for the same reasons we've shown here, different savings histories, the one has a, a good wife, the one has three wives, the one, you know, uh, all of those things, a one-size-fits-all is not appropriate. So we certainly really think that uh, having a default of one size is not appropriate. There is still a place for living annuities, whereas I think a lot of the, you know, the regulations were very anti-living annuities. I think it can have a very good place, especially given where people are. Uh, but it's rather about how do you structure those defaults. Um, but I'm happy to, maybe at another session, we can talk in detail more a little bit about uh, annuities and living annuities in general. Thank you. Um, thanks, John and Kelsey, um, and well done, Neil, for.